Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back all to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. We're here again in the Knox Cellar Studios. I'm Ryan Aris, and I'm joined, as always, by Nathan Oblak and Dr. Joe Boot. And we're also very pleased to have with us uh, over the wires, Tim Dieppe. And Tim is a fellow of the Ezra Institute, uh, for fellow for public policy. He is also head of public policy with Christian Concern in the UK. And it's, uh, it's in those two capacities where that we've got uh, Tim with us today, and we're very pleased to have you. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Tim. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Always love working with you guys. Have great memories of coming to the Ezra Institute a couple of years ago and speaking there. Hope to come again soon as well. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, it's uh, great to connect with you guys over this way. Yeah, it's a good opportunity to mention, uh, Ryan, that uh, uh, Tim was with us at the Runner Academy. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. In fact, our inaugural. Our That's inaugural right. Runner Academy. Runner Academy. And he'll be back. Uh, he'll be back again uh, with us in in the uh, in the years to come with the Runner Academy, mm-hmm. and uh, he's contributed articles and other things as one of our fellows. So we're really grateful for the relationship with uh, with Tim, and and with Christian Concern in the UK. That's right. Yeah, we did. Uh, Tim and I did our first uh, couple of podcast interviews while you were here. So Tim, recently you and Christian Concern were involved in a legal case in Scotland where you worked with 27 uh, pastors and uh, representatives of churches to bring a case against the government's closure and criminalization of gathered Christian worship. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that case came about, uh, why Christian Concern decided to get involved and what, uh, what has come of it? So, as you all know, governments around the world have done lockdowns um, in response to COVID. Um, and this started last year, about about a year ago, as we speak now, in March uh, last year. And um, th- uh, what we were most shocked about with that was the decision to criminalise Christian worship. That was what was most disturbing about it. And, of course, everyone was afraid, particularly in the first uh, lockdown, particularly as it was new, um, and people weren't sure what it was. And so, you know, churches were closing and other people were closing and so on. And the government panicked. But uh, we got together a group of church leaders back in May last year. And uh, a legal letter was sent to the government in May last year, um, challenging the government on the legality of criminalizing Christian worship. And um, some legal letters were exchanged and the government denied that they were acting unlawfully and so on. And then... Um, they relaxed Sunday trading, even though um, churches were still closed. And just as it was about to go to court, um, they opened the churches again. And we, we felt forced to drop the case because um, the, the judge would have just said, well, it's academic now because churches can open again. And then so we then sort of had a back and forth because Wales went into an emergency lockdown after that. And we got some Welsh church leaders together to challenge this. And then England went back into lockdown again and churches were closed again in November, and we, we reignited the claim again, and this time a lot more support. I think that a lot more church leaders recognised 
gosh, this is a precedent, you know, I think the first time people thought this is emergency and so on, but the second time people thought, gosh, how many times are they going to close churches? And um, what a precedent is this setting here? And we even had Theresa May, um, our former prime minister in parliament, say that this sets a precedent. It might be with the best intention, but it sets a precedent for people with the worst of intentions um, to close churches. And there were lots of round-robin letters, hundreds of church leaders, uh, sending letters, signing letters to the government, complaining about um, closing churches. Um, so in the end, in England and Wales, they reopened churches again in January. Um, and again, that was before legal action could progress. Um, but in Scotland, they closed them again in January. And so um, in Scotland, um, they criminalised worship again. And... Uh, so we had to get a group of get together a group of Scottish church leaders. We've got twenty seven Scottish church leaders together, um, and to uh, initiate legal action again there. Uh, this time in Scotland, they kept the churches closed right through to just last week, actually, um, and that enabled the legal action to progress. Um, and we got some very good lawyers um, involved in Scotland. Um, fantastic presentation of the legal case, both from the constitutional aspect. Um, which is, you know, I think that was amazing education for the whole legal world and parliamentarians and everything. I'll come on to that possibly more later, as well as the human rights case. And on both um, cases, um, the judge said that the Scottish government had acted unlawfully and that therefore churches should be allowed to open immediately. Now, the government had already planned to reopen churches on the Friday and by then it was like the Thursday or the Wednesday it was. Um, so it didn't make that much difference at that time. Um, but... For the future, this sets a huge historic precedent that it will make it much harder for governments, and I think this applies in Germany, in uh, England and Wales as well, much harder for them to close down churches again because this has been ruled unlawful and disproportionate. And so I think that we can safely say, like, next Christmas, even if there's a wave four or whatever it might be, and next Easter, um, churches will be open. Uh, they'll be allowed to open. And, uh, and the freedom to worship God um, has been preserved and the politicians have been educated about the importance of this. T Tim, perhaps just for our North American listeners who may not fully understand the intricacies of how the United Kingdom operates, you know, sometimes in North America, when people think of Britain, they just think England. Um, and obviously there's, uh, there's four parts of the United Kingdom. Could you just really briefly explain that for, for our listeners? So some of them might be a bit confused about, hang on a sec, England and Wales doing this and Scotland doing something else, and how does that work? Can you just briefly explain to people how it works in, yeah. in the UK? Yeah, well, I think even here we get confused about it, to be honest, Joe. <laughs> um, so basically the, the UK government, so it is one nation, the UK, uh, comprising England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, and they've devolved powers to a Scottish government as, and, a, and a Welsh Assembly and Northern Ireland um, Assembly as well. And they have quite significant powers to do their own rulings on certain things, a bit like the states in America, I suppose, um, having their own rules and regulations and things. So they have done slightly different lockdown measures um, across the different areas. And, and one example is that churches have been closed um, and forced to close in, in Scotland since January right through to near the end of March, whereas in England and Wales they weren't. And Wales imposed its separate lockdown in November, which England and Scotland didn't do. And there are slightly different restrictions across the different places as well. So, yes, there are different legal systems um, in there, yeah. Hmm. 
Now, Tim, you mentioned just a, a bit earlier about precedent in the UK and even in, in countries like Germany. Well, a question we've had a lot here over the past week, is this going to set any kind of meaningful precedent in Canada or the United States? And I guess this question's for Tim or Joe or anyone, but uh, what are our thoughts on that? Well, I think, uh, so, Tim, I'll get you to jump in as the expert here, but I, I think you know, we, we do technically share a head of state uh, with, uh, with the UK, so it's a, it's a natural question. I think there's comparable jurisdiction or a case to be made for that, right? Yeah, well, when uh, when when Tim uh, pointed out that this is a historic case, and uh, I did um, tweet briefly about this when the news first came out, uh, is that this is uh, Tim's not overstating it in saying that this is historic because this is the fir uh, the first um, here you have a Western country uh, and and one that's part of the United Kingdom, uh, which shares the same head of state as Canada. It's, it is a comparable jurisdiction. Judges do look at different uh, findings in these jurisdictions when they're considering how to rule on something. And so, um, I mean, I immediately sent this ruling to uh, an MPP to get in front of the Premier of Ontario because I wanted him to see that a, 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 a judge in a comparable jurisdiction uh, had ruled that the this this locking down of the, of of the church in this way um is regarded as illegal and 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 unconstitutional so i do think there is some that this is this isn't just oh it's over there on the island this does have this could have a meaningful bearing on legal discussions in the united states and in canada as uh, as judges deliberate yeah, I, on this. I like to think so joe and i hope that's true the only thing i'd say is that um one of the arguments we brought to bear in this case was international precedent and there have been rulings in France and in Germany and in some states in America that have actually made it um, ruled that it's unlawful to close churches or close places of worship. And um, the judge in our case said, well, actually, um, we've decided there's no international precedent. And so he decided to sort of not, not ignore that in some ways, do you know what I mean? And just make the decision on our own basis rather than worry about what else has been done elsewhere. Now, I realise there's a special relationship here and also similar constitutions and all of that kind of thing. Um, I, but I do think the human rights aspect um, should apply in a lot of jurisdictions and, and should come through. And this is one of the reasons why we thought our case was strong was because it had been won in other jurisdictions on, on some similar basis, particularly the human rights um, basis there. Um, so I, you know, I think that even if the judge said, well, I'm not going to worry about what other judges said and other jurisdictions said, the fact is that precedents had been set showing that governments had not taken into account Article 9 of the European Convention of Human Rights, um, which is about freedom of religion and freedom of worship. And it's a very, very strong protection. And you can't do like, here we are, off licenses are open and bike shops are open and churches are closed. You know, the judge is saying, well, that's just obviously not taking into account Article 9, if that's what you do, right? Mm. If you said you can only actually go, you have to, you know, there's a curfew, right? Then fine, churches are closed as everything else is closed. I mean, that's kind of, you know, fair enough. But if you're saying some things can open, others can't, and churches are amongst the non-essential things, then you're disregarding the impulse of worship. And that's kind of part of the fundamental ruling of this, of this um, judgment that came out. Just picking up on something there then, Tim, in terms of this notion of jurisdictions, one of the things that Canadians will be very familiar with is that um, in 1982, around the time Ryan was born, I think, um, what year were you born, Ryan? 
83 or just after um the uh the we, we had something introduced in canada to replace the british north america act and it's been interesting to me to, to see this because the we're in uncharted uh if i can use that expression in this context we're in uncharted territory for the canadian charter because the the protections supposedly afforded people in what we call section two of the canadian charter uh have been ridden over completely roughshod in canada over this past year in the name of caveats to section two fundamental rights fundamental rights and freedoms from section one which basically says that you know, if uh, if the government deems it or the courts deem it uh, demonstrably justifiable, if the government can can justify uh, their suspension of these liberties, then they can just be suspended. And it's ironic to me that in a jurisdiction like England, I mean, in, in summarising what you've said, you've basically told us that in England and Wales, the churches are open um, with very, very few um, guidelines or restrictions uh, without even having to go to the courts it was really the threat of legal action now you and you're now saying that scotland uh has had things opened up and this ban on worship ruled illegal um and this is a country which doesn't have a written constitution and all the bragging that we've done in canada over the years and the thought was is that well in order for us to strengthen these protections in order for us to strengthen human rights this was the guise under which we got the charter uh, that the british north america act and, and legal precedent and the way legal precedent works was insufficient and so here we can uh, we can harden these rights these historic rights and inherited rights into a charter of rights and freedoms and yet we haven't been able to exercise those freedoms when they're first put to the a real test um in uh this this situation when because as i say we're in we're in uh, unknown waters here untested waters with the courts and yet in the uk uh where there is no written constitution but it's about legal precedent and tradition and inheritance um although i know that there are laws with respect to the human rights commissions in europe but the legal history of england um is not one of a written constitution and charter and yet you have got these freedoms have you got any thoughts on that tim any comments on helping people understand in north america how the british legal system works with respect to case law and so on and how that might slightly differ from both the u.s and canada the u.s seems to afford more protection in its constitution than our charter clearly yeah it's kind of counterintuitive isn't it to think that you know i tend to agree the intuition would be that a written constitution that expressly declares these um, freedoms or whatever would be stronger protection. But, um, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because it seems, like you say, like an unwritten constitution by precedent um, actually counts more powerfully. And I was just very, very struck by the history lesson. And, this, you know, the constitution in England and in Scotland is, is really about let's go back to the history of, of these various acts and of parliament and so on. And the, the judgment goes 
right back, this is because our, our lawyers presented this evidence uh, to the ancient historic doctrine of trois kingdoms in Scottish, two kingdoms, that there's, there's the, the domain of the state and the domain of the church, and the state cannot interfere with the church. And that's, you know, we went back to the General Assembly Act of 1592, the Confession of Faith Ratification Act 1690, the Act for Securing Protestant Religion 1706, the Union of Scotland Act 1706, the Union of England Act 1707, which Act guarantees Scotland all time coming the independence of its church uh, from the state. Um, and then you also jump forward to the Church of Scotland Act in 1921, which said that the state cannot interfere with the church. And the interesting thing about that is that, you know, I've, I've seen and heard top legal commentators say, oh, there's an interesting history lesson there. In other words, they didn't know any of this. Right. We, what we've done is reminded people or, you know, brought it back into memory, um, this remarkable history of, you know, the way it was set up by Protestants that clearly said there's the church and the state. There are two of them. One doesn't interfere with the other. The state doesn't have the right to interfere with the, with the church. And the interesting thing was that the government accepted that point. They said, oh, yeah, we agree. We can't interfere with spiritual matters. Um, but they tried to argue that somehow closing the church wasn't interfering, <laughs> which is kind of extraordinary. And, of course, the judge was like, no, 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 that doesn't really work. Um, and went back to saying, you know, the question is whether it's proportional, like like I just said to you, in a curfew, perhaps it is acceptable um, kind of thing. Um, so and, and ended up judging both this constitutional argument and the European human rights argument on the question of proportionality. Um, and, and that's where we got to. But, you know, it's fantastic to remind the nation of this history. And this is how the Constitution works. It's going back to the history and the precedent and what the laws have said. And the government, it's remarkable, the government lawyers agreed, yes, we don't have any right to interfere with, this, with the church. We can't set, you know, interfere with doctrine or worship. And that's where we are. And that's been re-established in law through this case and that will then become the precedent that people point to now when looking at the constitution on this issue i think this is the big strength of this case because uh this is what we have been trying to remind people of here in canada as well and frankly it's been a real battle even with the churches and pastors to get them to understand that basic jurisdictional distinction and separation with church and state and uh to remind them, actually, and, and uh, I was involved in, in drafting something called the Niagara Declaration, which was trying to be part of that reminding process that we are reminding people of these liberties and freedoms that are inherited. And, of course, that, that history that you're talking about is part of the constitutional history of Canada, too. And our listeners should be conscious of that, um, that um, the Canadian Dominion, the British North America Act, uh, the, the, the fact that the Queen is still remains our head of state is that connectedness that we have with all of that legal precedent, which was then supposed to be embodied or crystallized within the Charter. And sadly, it hasn't, because as you've said, we're ignorant of that history. Most modern lawyers and justices are ignorant of that history. And we're more concerned with judicial activism in this country um, and redefining these things, actually, than we are with, I think, preserving them. But one of the most interesting things in that... Do you know another interesting thing, Joe, is that our lawyers... Um who, who we got to take this case on in Scotland, and they're, they're Christians, and we sort of said, you you must use this constitutional argument. And initially, they were very reticent to do that. They're like, oh, I don't know about that. Or, you know, I'm not sure that will really work. And then as they looked into it and got into it, they got more and more enthusiastic about the constitutional argument and, and, and like, keen to make sure it was included and use it as well. So even, like, Christian lawyers are like, 
you know, unaware of how powerful these protections were and, and how historic and what the precedent was there. And, and, um, and you know, having sort of gone in, Lyle, I suppose if you instruct us to, we'll have to use these arguments, but I really don't want to. They then came around to, we really must use these arguments. They're powerful. This is actually really strong stuff. You know, it's, it's interesting. It seems this judge also understood uh, that being online was not worship. Another point we've been struggling to uh, to get leaders and pastors here to understand, as I understand from looking at the ruling, the judge said that whatever online is, and it may be um, uh, a useful tool to do certain things, whatever that constitutes, it isn't worship. Is that correct? Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I can quote you from the judgment here. For you know, for all these reasons, says the judge, I am clear that the effect of the closure of places of worship is that the petitioners and the additional party are effectively prevented from practicing or manifesting their religion, however many broadcasts or internet platforms may exist. Right. So, um, so it's fantastically clear that, and and basically the petitions has argued very well that you can't do laying of hands, you can't do baptisms, you can't do arguing sacraments. Um, and that you can't really fellowship and worship in the same way online as in person, and that Jesus commanded us um, to come together and never stop meeting together and all of these kind of things. And so um, this um, very clear ruling from the judge is is very powerful. And again, sort of the gov- this is something the government lawyers were trying to argue against. They're trying, oh, we haven't really set the churches because they can still meet online, this kind of thing. And the judge's like, no, actually... Worship essentially must be in person. That's what these petitions believe, and that's a respectable belief, and that's that's historic and true. Um, and so he said, no, they must be allowed to meet physically because that's what their worship involves, and that's what worship is. And internet can't substitute uh, for actual worship in person. Yeah. Well, and I mentioned earlier that a lot of people have been reaching out to us wondering about precedent uh, and whether a meaningful one has been set that we can leverage here in Canada. I, we've got a lot of emails, especially from BC, and I think the reason for that is just days before the ruling in Scotland, uh, in BC, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court upheld the absolute prohibition of in-person worship services. And just for those that, that don't know, uh, that prohibition has been in place since November the 19th. And the, the Chief Justice admitted that... Uh, that Freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of association had all been infringed upon, but this justice decided that the infringements were reasonable, given the circumstances. And this goes back to what Joe mentioned about Section 1 of the Charter earlier. Yeah, so so that effectively, Tim, is almost like a... It's the reverse judgment here. You've got, you've got a, a, a situation where there's almost like a hierarchy of rights in the mind of the of, of, of the justice here and, and religious freedom, freedom of worship, freedom of assembly are found at the bottom, um, uh, basically on the whim of bureaucrats. Well, well, I mean, in, in the Scottish case, the judge clearly ruled that it was disproportionate um, and the, the statistics were marshaled showing that they hadn't been able to find very many cases that had originated in churches um, in the period when churches were allowed to open, and um, and that when they they tried that the government basically overestimated the effects 
um, of spreading the transmission of churches being allowed to open um, in various ways. And the judge said, basically, this is obviously disproportionate. And this is one of the reasons he said churches should just open immediately because there's not, I can't see it's going to have any effect on the pandemic, any meaningful effects on, on transmission uh, of coronavirus. Um, so, um, and, and, if, and again, if, if they're allowing certain things, another example he used was with similar cinemas for jury service and court trials, if you're allowing that to happen in person, then worship has got to be as at least as important as that yeah. under these laws, and therefore you've got to allow churches open too. So it's it is very powerful this this particular judgment, and um, quite shocking to hear that it's gone the other way for you guys. Yeah, and and this was a similar argument uh, by you know our friends at ARPA, Andre Shuten, who's another fellow for the Ezra Institute, was that it was disproportional because in British Columbia, bars, restaurants, gyms, businesses, they're all open. But the judge still decided that pro- prohibiting worship is reasonable, given the circumstances. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. absolutely shocking. Activism on steroids. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, uh, honestly, it's, it's enlightening and encouraging and fascinating to hear you speak about the, uh, the historic precedent that, uh, that you've been citing and the, the historical arguments that, uh, that your team was making in this case. Uh, one one of the things that uh, that we've encountered in Canada repeatedly, I'm sure you've he- heard some version of this, is that you, we're being overly concerned with our rights. That in, effectively we're be we're being selfish and self interested, and we're being too quick to respond. That uh, oh, there's there's government overreach. That we're we're damaging the Christian witness, and that uh, that we're just really sort of looking out for our own interests, which is not a, not a Christian, excuse me, not, not a Christian uh, posture runs the argument. And uh, Tim, I'll, I'll uh, push that over to you first to respond to that, but uh, I'd like to open it up to, uh, to everyone as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, um, I think that, you know, let's, what about God's interests? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what about God's interests in having his people worship and having people have access to worship and having people um, fellowship and all of that. I think that's very important. And I think that, you know, you can't underestimate the importance of worship, can you? You know, it's like fundamentally what we're created to do, right? And it's fundamentally what we should be able to do and free to do. And the governments do not have rights um, to restrict that. And it's, it's not really about us exercising our rights. It's about the government, you know, going beyond its own rights, um, I think, and, you know, but what's really sad is the extent to which churches have bought into the fear around this. So, you know, we've just been talked about how churches have been allowed to open in England since January, but at least 80% of them have not opened. Um, they're only just starting to open now as we get to Easter and as other lockdown measures. So they voluntarily continue to be closed and continue to just worship online and that kind of thing. So I think the, the value and the importance of gathering together and meeting together has um been underestimated and I worry that the main thing that many churches have taught over the last year is that we don't need to bother meeting together and they've taught that by example as well as through what they've said um, and I think that's a real concern of ours um, yeah but I think the, the the posture has got to be you know all stood up for his rights um, you know Peter stood up for his rights Daniel stood up for his rights you know this is 
what's part of what we do, part of what Christian ministry is, is saying, hang on, you know, this is not just, this is not right, you've overstepped the, the mark here, and you're actually interfering with something that God has commanded. Yeah, I think that um, one of the interesting things to me, Tim, is that we seem to have seen an almost in uh, a sort of revolution in understanding our relationship with civil government. And I think the sort of statist and totalitarian character of Western society has, uh, in some respects, sort of revealed itself that we've become, become sort of all good political statists to the point where it, it, it used to be the case that the function of government, of civil government, was uh, certainly in the Western tradition, uh, was in, in terms of God's uh, law to put a limited number of parameters uh, around our lives, law is one of the conditions of life that that forbid certain um, actions, and 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 it's fairly simple what those actions are. It was very much centered around the Ten Commandments, and it was, I think, G.K. Chesterton who famously said, "If you don't live by the Ten Commandments, you'll live by the Ten Thousand Commandments." So there was a limited number of things which government says you can't do this because it's it's it, and everything else is freedom. So in the way that God works, here's my here's my here's my charter for living. You can't do these things. Um, everything else is freedom. Now we've kind of reversed that to the point where the government is saying, the civil government is saying, you need permission to give your family a hug. You need permission from the state to attend your daughter's wedding. You need, you need permission from the state to bury your dad or your mum. Uh, to sing at church. You need permission to sing. You need permission to take communion. You need permission to hear the word of God preached. And we will give you permission. Even who, who you can have in your home. Who you, can, who you can welcome into your own home. Exactly. Who you can associate with. So suddenly we've almost, almost as though we've embraced this status totalitarian notion of society. And we're now humble supplicants to the government begging them to allow us to hug our kids. Uh, which seems to me to be a radical reversal of the principle of freedom that, that God establishes for us, uh, where these are pre-political rights. The right to work, the right to have a family and to hug our children and bury our parents and associate with our friends and worship the living God. These are not rights bestowed on us by the state. They are actually God-given liberties that the state is obligated to recognize and protect. That's the Christian vision. We seem to have reversed that and ended up in this completely pagan situation again where the state's going to tell you how many kids you can have and it's going to uh, pretty much tell you exactly how you're going to live your life. Because it's all reasonable under the charter. Right, because because the, the reason of bureaucrats and technocrats and experts tells you that they need to govern your life in such a way. And my contention throughout this whole period has been, hang on a second, are we not now giving civil government uh, a role, uh, even in the idea of human well-being, that's so radically reductionistic that we've now given them an almost totalitarian reach that, that, that life, as you've heard me argue before, uh, Tim, is uh, really just a sort of uh, biotic survival program. It's not truly living. And I like where you started with that, that 
when we talk about um, what we should be allowed to do, and, and Ryan, you mentioning people, you know, saying that aren't we too obsessed with our rights? What about God's law? What about God's commandments? What about God's requirements of the family and of the church and of the state in the midst of this? That doesn't seem to get talked about. We'll be right back after this. One thing that we've been emphasizing for a long time at the Ezra Institute is the goodness of work and the fact that all of our life, including our work, is meant to be done as an act of worship and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. This summer, we're inviting teens ages 14 to 19 to experience the world through new eyes at the Faith and Farm Camp. Join us for a week of summer camp that combines Christian worldview training with hands-on practice of conservation, farming, and environmental stewardship. You'll also receive foundational training in Christian worldview, including what God's Word has to say about our vocation, the environment, the home, and the family. God made us for work, and He has called us to delight in it. Join us this summer to discover the richness and goodness of work as you come alongside leading practitioners and scholars and learn about our Christian responsibility toward the world that God has given us. Register for Faith and Farm Camp today by visiting EzraInstitute.ca. I agree, yeah. I mean, um, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that um, the, the concern, you know, of course, you know, how this has happened is fear, isn't it, Joe, right? You know, the, the, you know in, because people are afraid, they think, gosh, yeah, they, they look to the government to save them. And the government has, you know, is given the right because of people's fear to interfere in all these ways um, in their freedoms and people surrender freedoms in exchange for mitigating their fear. Um, and that's really the problem here. And people have become too afraid of this virus and, and have surrendered their rights because of fear. And that's normally how totalitarianism comes in, through fear. Um, there's, a, there's some threat over here, whether it's another government, whether it's a virus, a plague, whatever it might be. And the government says, right, in order to defeat this, we've got to surrender lots and lots of freedoms. And everyone says, yes, 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 please, because we want to defeat this. We're too afraid of it. And um, this is where we've got to here today. Yeah. Tim, uh, switching uh, or looking through a different lens for just a moment here, can you can you comment on the uh, the state of UK churches? You mentioned that it was it was twenty seven churches who uh, who participated in bringing this legal challenge. What's the uh, what's the ecosystem of the churches there? How how is this uh, being received by by Scottish churches or UK churches more broadly, is this uh, is this victory being celebrated widely? Yeah, no, actually, do you know, it's got remarkably little coverage and remarkably little um, celebration in the church. I think, and uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that um, the churches were already allowed to open in England and Wales, and everybody's like, "Well, so what?" To a degree. Um, about this ruling. And the other is that even in Scotland, as I said, the government had said that we're planning to open churches anyway last Sunday, and the judge said it got open immediately on Wednesday before. And so again, that can be a bit of a so what thing for people like it hasn't really made a difference. Um, so I think I think people don't really appreciate how significant it is because what it will do, as I said earlier, is protect the churches from the government doing it again. That's really the big deal here. Um, but I think that also churches too much have bought into the idea that, well, what's so wrong about uh, meeting online? Do you know, I was at a conference of conservative reformed Christians the other week, only two weeks ago, and one of the church leaders there said, I haven't taken communion for, for a whole year. Um, and I said, 
do you really think that that's what the reformers would have done? Do you think the reformers would have tolerated that? Do you think the Puritans would have tolerated not taking communion for a, a whole year? What kind of church do you think you have if you haven't taken communion for a year? And it's interesting because this is in a discussion group, but everyone else, uh, you know, rose up to defend that chap, saying it's not so bad and all this kind of thing. But, and that's this is the mentality we've got into that oh, it doesn't really matter this stuff and and you know it's okay because we're online and some people are watching online and this kind of thing and it's like no it's not okay you know people surrender their lives for meeting up and you haven't understood that what's happened here is you've surrendered and you've surrendered the church and i wrote an article about the the puritans in the plague and you know what happened there is the um, the established church the Anglican vicars who were rich enough left London because they you know, wanted to get out of where the, the risk of infection was and the Puritans went in and they went into where the plague was, opened up the churches that had been closed, went and preached the gospel, ministered to the sick, even went into the blocked up houses where they were being quarantined that no one else wanted to go into at risk of their lives. Doubtless some of them did lose their lives, but they preached the gospel and actually as a result of that, um, they, you know, this non-conformist religion actually became recognised in law because of the moral authority that they had from preaching the gospel in a time of plague at great risk to their lives. And and we've, somehow we've completely lost that. And and Christians are saying, oh yeah, but you know, people won't see it so much today. Well, maybe it's because we're not preaching so boldly today. You know, I mean, I, I just think you know, there's something really badly missing in the churches today, and I think it needs to be recovered. And and you know, we need to preach it and teach it this this kind of thing and tim clearly you know with the illustration that you've given there i mean it's fantastic to to point up the puritans too and their response because we've talked about that a little bit as well uh but um clearly we don't really believe then in that mentality that 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 when we come to the lord's table it is actually a means of grace to us that, uh, as Calvin would have argued, that this is, you know, this, th- these sort of jokes that have been, you know, um, uh, you know, these sort of sat- satirical perspectives that have uh, that we've seen over the past ten years or so of kind of virtual church and people wearing goggles and sitting on their couch doing <laughs> virtual church and you know selecting selecting their pastor on the degree of skinny jeans that they're wearing and and uh, selecting the style of worship and everything's totally consumerist. These sort of um, these sort of jokes have come painfully close to the truth in this situation. If we can actually say that you don't really need to be in-person worship, we don't need the laying on of hands of the sick, we don't need to ordain leaders into office through the laying on of hands, we don't need to gather at the Lord's table, one of two sacraments that was given us by the Lord himself and has been understood by the Reformed Church as a means of grace. So what does, Tim, what does it say, in your view, about our view of the sacraments even? I mean, you can't baptize anybody virtually, although we've heard of ridiculous attempts to talk about avatar baptisms here. In fact, <laughs> we had one, uh, one guest talk about how they were on a, on, on a call with 200 movement leaders in North America, and there was somebody on that call uh, a Zoom call demonstrating how to do an avatar baptism uh, online. An av- Did you say avatar? An avatar, avatar. baptism <laughs> online. A, a virtual. Vir- <laughs> I kid you not. It sounds like a joke. Listen, uh, Joe, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that the sacraments <laughs> and all of this laying on of hands and baptism and, and um, communion and so on, it, it is something that we've somehow 
um, discarded or, or you know, not regarded as important mm-hmm. and um, not really, you know, not really recognised as significant. So again, I was struck at the pastors' conference I was at um, that there was a discussion about communion. And they say, oh, it's an antidote to Platonism because, you know, Platonism says that really it's only the soul that's important and not the body, but here's the, the, the body and the wine, the, the, the bread and the wine, and that's physical and you can't not do it physically, and therefore it's an antidote to Platonism. But we haven't done it for a year and that doesn't matter. What? How do you square <laughs> that? You know, how do they square that in their minds? You know, that, that, um, square that yes, circle. They sort of, you know, theoretically get the importance, but in practice um, they're prepared to give it up. And, uh, and say, oh, it didn't really matter. And then, you know, rationalise it on the basis, oh, I'll be so looking forward to when I can take communion and all of this kind of thing. Um, so I think that we have, um, you know, lost some of our theology of the sacraments and um, and not really got it and, you know, overemphasised that God is everywhere and it doesn't really matter and, and, you know, God can meet me anywhere and this is the kind of pushback we get when we say, hey, look, we've managed to win a league of victory, we can now meet together and stuff and they're all you know who are you to say we can't meet online and who are you to say we can't worship anywhere well of course you can worship anywhere but we are commanded to meet together but you can't just do baptism on an avatar or in your own room or something like that you know and you can't just do communion online and you can't just do laying on of hands online and you can't really worship together online and what about the gifts of the spirit as well and ministering in them that you can do that a bit online, but you can't do laying on of hands and various other aspects of it online. Um, so I think that um, there are issues here and, and theological things for people to think through and properly engage with. Yeah, you can't have a virtual uh, church any more than you can have a virtual marriage. I mean, you can worship anywhere, but that's not the church. Mm-hmm. Well, this is all reminding me uh, of what Aaron Coates, the wife of uh, the jailed pastor, uh, James Coates, has been saying for some time, but in responding to you know, the high amount of criticism that uh, her husband and her church has received. She said, you know, the water has gone out and our church here in North America obviously has a low view of ecclesiology, a low view of the sacraments, a low view of the one another's. And, uh, you know, it's boiled down to this pastor broke the law and is deserving of criticism. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a tragic situation, that attitude. Well, I think that that's another aspect, isn't it? That the church in the West has tended to emphasize... Um, the submission to authorities and obeying the law and this kind of thing, and then and not that's not been a problem because we've had a basically Christian society with basically Christian laws, right? And so that has been the right thing to do to say you must obey the law. But suddenly we're faced with actual uh, legislation that's anti-Christian and that's um, that's actually you know even prohibiting what the Bible says you should do. And then, but we're still in this mindset of I've got to obey the law, got to obey the law. And then churches just say, yes, we've just got to obey the law. And we rationalize it and say, oh, it's okay because we can meet online. Oh, it's okay because there's a pandemic. Oh, it's, you know, and, and this is where we are, I think, on this. Mm-hmm. No, it's astonishing what you can get used to. Mm-hmm. It is. Tim, just as we, as we, as we um, sort of draw this to a close, to, to wrap this up a bit, um, we've got a, another really bizarre and troubling situation in in BC. Uh, We were just talking about BC. This is another situation in Canada where there is a a father um, who uh, has been found guilty of family violence and I believe jailed um, for essentially misgendering uh, his daughter who wants to transition. 
And uh, this has been in the press for a little while. Uh, it's been going on, I think, for over a year or so, um, this, this situation. Um, from what I understand, you've been writing an article uh, about this because you, you, in the UK, this is, you know, this is recognized as a matter of real concern. Here's, again, a comparable jurisdiction. And um, we've got a, a serious, you know, talk about legislation going against God's word and, 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 and Christian law. Here we've got a situation where, where a father is being persecuted um, for not going along with the with the political correctness of his age and and signing off on the um, uh, well eventually of course the, the 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 treatment in inverted commas of his daughter to transition. Um, have you got any thoughts on that as we as we wrap this uh, as we begin to wrap this up? Yeah. No. Um... Joe, I'm absolutely shocked by this case. Um, and as I look into it, you know, this um, this father, his name's Rob Hoogler, Hoogland, and um, his daughter started to identify as a boy at school when she was 12 years old. And the school encouraged that. They actually, you know, showed transgender propaganda videos and transgender propaganda material um, in lessons and gave her a male name or encouraged her to find and encouraged her to identify with a male name. And the father only discovered this when he sort of short saw her male name in a class book. Um, so they kept it. They're not even told the parents that they're re-identifying this girl as a boy at school. Then, of course, the, the, the school referred her to a psychologist who was an LGBT activist, who then referred her for just testosterone injections when she was 13 years old. Now, what's interesting about that to me is that here in the UK, only back in December, there was a legal challenge by somebody who's a now detransitioning, um, who wanted to transition as a girl to a boy when she was a child. And she says, but nobody should have authorized it. So I didn't have the, yeah, I wasn't in my right mind. I, even though that was, I was wanted, I didn't, I wasn't in my right mind. Nobody should have authorized me to have um, hormone therapy as a child. And the judge said, yes, you're right, and bound it. And it's now illegal to give this kind of treatment to children um, here in the UK. And there you are in Canada. And this father went to court to say, no, you can't just give this treatment to my daughter. And the court said, yes, we can, um, even though she was only like um, 15, um, at under, you know, less than 16 years old. And so, and then the court said, you can't even call um, this girl she or call her a daughter, you know, and if you do, like, you, as you said, it's, you know, he got convicted of family violence for referring to his daughter as she, family violence for, you know, for speaking the truth. And then he was ordered not to talk about it. He did some interviews with some uh, commentators. They were all taken down after legal threats. Um, and But he was like, well, I'm not going to stop talking about this because if my daughter in future years detransitions, much like this girl in the UK, um, and says, why did nobody warn me? Why did they tell me? I don't want to have her say to me, you know, be able to say to me, you should have spoken out. So he decided to speak out as much as he could, and then the court, like you know, actually jailed him for speaking the truth um, on the basis of contempt of court. So I think this is an absolutely landmark, shocking thing. You're in jail for speaking the truth. You're in jail for calling your daughter a daughter, for calling your daughter she. I mean, you know, how does this happen in a in a what was a free society? You know, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, Rod Dreher's book that only came out, was it, last year, uh, Live Not By Lies, about you know, the Soviet dissenters who said you had to resolve never to uh, coalesce, to, to agree with a lie. And this father, who's not in a Christian father, I'm aware, um, had
has made that decision. I'm not going to go along with this. I'm going to carry on calling my daughter she. I'm going to carry on speaking what is an obvious truth here. And and yet, there you are in Canada. And what it, I think it shows is how intolerant the LGBT lobby is and how totalitarian it can very, very quickly become. And, you know, and of course, Jordan Peterson warned about this, as did some others um, back in 2016 when Bill 16, C16 came through. And he was you know, written off as an alarmist. And now, of course, it's all come to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was sadly very predictable. And I think it challenges us that you know, we're only that far away from totalitarianism where people can be in prison for speaking the truth. And um, this is what's happened here. And I really hope it stands as a warning sign uh, for people and that, that people rise up and fight it and challenge it. But it's, uh, it's really a very disturbing and shocking thing for all parents um, across the Western world that you can be jailed for calling your daughter a daughter. Yeah, well, we we're uh, we're familiar with the the territory of um, being called alarmist and uh, warning people about these things and having the sort of misery of seeing them uh, um, come to pass. And this is kind of the product of a of critical theory um, and uh, in, in its various manifestations, where we're we've reached this point where people are literally being coerced to confess lies, um, obvious, patent lies. Um, and uh, taking, which radically, of course, demoralizes a culture, and um, uh, get gets us to uh, uh, a point where, where now, people's moral courage starts to fade as well because they're afraid of the they're afraid of the consequences. And I think this this, if anything, I I agree with you, Tim. This has to be if if this doesn't wake people up, especially Christians up, to what is taking place in our society. Um, I honestly am not sure that anything could, but we're moving into that Mao Zedong kind of territory here, uh, and um, and with 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 these sorts of decisions, and unless God's people re- react strongly, um, there's uh, there's there's no end to how deep this rabbit hole goes. Mm-hmm. Well, there it is. There it is, saints. Act strongly. Stand firm in the faith. Tim, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for uh, sharing about uh, about this case, about uh, the work of Christian Concern. Bless you guys in uh, in the UK, in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. I think I got that right. And uh, <laughs> read his article. Thank you. It's, great. it's been great chatting <laughs> with you guys. Love it. Love mm-hmm. what you're doing. Really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Do, thank do, you. Uh, and it's uh, it's ChristianConcern.com. Uh, Tim has got several articles there. He's got articles on the Ezra Institute website as well. Be sure to, uh, to check those out. Tim, you're a, a great friend and a great resource. It's a blessing to see you again. And uh, Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Loved it. All right. Well, from all of us at the Ezra Institute, this has been Worldview Wednesday, reminding you that from him, through him, and to him are all things. To God be the glory. We'll see you next week. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time